Uh, last September, we started walking through the, the book of Romans together. And we covered chapters one through three last fall, and then chapters four through eight in the spring of this year. And we finished at the end of Romans eight in May. And now the plan, Lord willing, is that we'll cover chapters nine through 11 this fall, and then 12 through 16 in the spring. So all told, it'll be a two-year project as we're walking through the book of Romans together. But because we've taken a, uh, the summer off, I just wanted to sort of remind you of some of the things that we talked about. Uh, this is an important transition period in the book of Romans. We subtitled this sermon series in the book of Romans, Gospel Unity Propels Mission. Gospel Unity Propels Mission. And Josh pointed out last fall why we have given it that title. So let me just remind us. The Apostle Paul covers a lot of different topics in this letter. And so it's kind of hard to figure out what is it that's the, the sort of uniting theme? What is it that brings this whole thing together? What's the big idea of the whole letter? But it seems that one clear recurring theme throughout this letter is the advance of the gospel into the nations. And we can see this idea that it, we can see that it's central to what he wrote here in the letter to the Romans because he emphasizes it both in the beginning and in the end of the letter. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that he received grace and apostleship. He's been sent out on Christ's behalf, is what that means, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then at the end of the letter, in chapter 16, we see this. He touches on the same topic again, the obedience of faith being made known to all nations. And so it's at the beginning and the end of this letter. So this is how we understand how this is kind of all put together. Now, he wrote this letter to the church in Rome in part in hopes that these Christians would help him on a missionary journey that he planned to take into Spain. He wanted to continue to spread the good news of the gospel to the nations, to those who had not yet heard it. But there were some relational challenges within that church at Rome. We'll explain some of this in a moment. A little bit of history is helpful to understand this. But there were some relational challenges within the church at Rome that were sort of distracting them from the mission. There were two different kinds of ethnicities in the church. So we have the Jewish Christians, and then there were the Gentile Christians. The Jews are the people who've descended from the nation of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. And then the Gentiles includes everyone who's not them everyone who's not from that nation of Israel. So, some history. We know from ancient Roman historians that in the year A.D. 49, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. They all had to leave Rome. But then Claudius died, that Roman emperor, he died about five years later. So the Jews that were allowed to come back uh, started to do so. They started to trickle back into the church. So Paul's writing this letter just a few years after they've begun to return. So they've been kicked out, and now they're trickling back into the church. You can imagine what that might have felt like. You can imagine how those Jews might have felt like they were on the outside. They were on the margins. You know how they say that you can't step into the same river twice? It's kind of that idea that the church had changed over those five years while the Israelites were, were out. The Jews returned to a different situation than the one that they left. The Roman church had changed and developed. Of course, all the leaders within the church at Rome would have been Gentiles now because, of course, that was all that was left during those five years when the Jews had left. So when the Jews returned, 
there would have been some conflict and friction between these two groups. Maybe the Gentile Christians thought they were superior to the Jewish Christians even. So Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome to encourage unity in and around the gospel so that the mission of evangelizing the nations could be propelled forward. Ergo, gospel unity prepares, or propel, goodness. See, I tried to set it up, and then I want to say what happened. Gospel unity propels mission. Chapters one through four of Romans focus on sin and justification. Of course, touches on the relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles. In verse one, uh, uh, chapter one, verse 16, he says, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice these two groups here again, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. So that interplay between these two groups, these two ethnicities comes up over and over again throughout this letter. And then in chapters five through eight, Paul covers new life as a Christian, what it means to live in a way that puts sin to death, to seeks to walk in obedience by the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter eight, Paul ends the section that we talked about in the, in the month of May. He ends that section talking about these huge claims about God's love, about how it cannot be stopped no matter what. And so he wants the Roman church to have a strong assurance of their salvation based on what Christ has done for them. So this is what Paul's building up towards. Remember, he says in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate you from God's love. His, his promises are unassailable. Okay, and that, that's gonna bring us into Romans 9 now. So if this is true, Paul, if God's promises are unassailable, if they're unstoppable, why are so many of God's first covenant people, Israel, why are so many of them not embracing the gospel? What about the promises God made to them in the Old Testament? Did God's word to them fail? This is the question that's going to influence all of chapters 9 through 11. And so, Paul begins this portion of the letter that we're covering this fall, and he starts by just strongly affirming his love that he has for his fellow Israelites and reaffirming the fact that Israel was given some astounding privileges by God himself. The greatest of those privileges, of course, is the fact that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born from their ethnicity, and yet so many of them still don't believe in this Christ, and that causes Paul deep sorrow causes Paul deep anguish. So our big idea this morning, those that know the reality of the gospel have a burden to share it with those they love. Here's the outline. Let me show you the outline slide. Just two points this morning from the text. First, condemnation remains for those who are cut off from Christ in verses one through three. Second, God's gracious privileges don't guarantee faith in Christ. We'll see that in verses four and five. Father, would you help us this morning to understand your word in a way that will be uh, an encouragement, uh, in a way that will bring life, zeal for the gospel, zeal for the souls of others. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to make that happen for us this morning. We know that you will help us. We ask for that help now in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Condemnation remains for those who are cut off from Christ. We see this in verses 1 through 3, and I'll just read those verses for us again. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was in deep sorrow, deep anguish, deep pain, deep grief, deep sadness and distress over the unbelief of his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he calls them, his countrymen. Paul was, of course, himself a Jew. He was Jewish by ethnicity. And yet, because he was seen as an apostle who was sent to the Gentile nations with the gospel, some might have thought that he turned his back on the Jewish people. And so Paul now is speaking in very strong, clear terms here to try to communicate his affection for the Israelite brothers and sisters that he has according to the flesh. He is speaking the truth, he says. He is not lying. Notice that he distinguishes in the text, he distinguishes between two inner voices, if you will, his conscience and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. His conscience is an internal, subjective awareness of what's right and wrong. Everyone, no matter what, has a conscience, bearing some sort of rare disorder. You have a conscience. The conscience is a natural ability to recognize right from wrong. It's an awareness of whether or not you're living up to your own moral standards, sort of internally, subjectively. But we know that because of the effects of sin, our consciences are not always calibrated rightly. So we can't trust them fully. We should obey our consciences whenever we have opportunity. We need to obey it. But we also need to recognize that they need to be calibrated. Sometimes our conscience is too sensitive. It can be overly responsive or it can be seared and unresponsive. So the conscience can be uh, untrustworthy to some degree. Jiminy Cricket's advice to Pinocchio to always let your conscience be your guide is only as good as the conscience that you have. For instance, before he was born again, Paul looked on approvingly when a, a man was stoned to death as a Christian. But here, his conscience testifies with him in the spirit that that is now, now that he's born again, now that he loves God, loves his law, he loves his promises, and the Holy Spirit now is within Paul, renewing and recalibrating his conscience. As a Christian, this is just an important thing to keep in mind, and we'll talk about this more in coming weeks or months in the book of Romans. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is... That is a very distinctive ringtone. If you can just pull the volume of, the vo of my mic down just a couple, just keep pulling it down. There's still that feedback in there. Just keep pulling it down, keep pulling it down. Yeah, we'll, we'll, make, we'll make it work. <clears throat> yeah, this is, my, this is my microphone. Sorry, guys. It's one of the, man. Whew, it's one of those mornings. <laughs> Paul has a conscience. He knows that it needs to be corrected according to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now that he's born again, now that he knows that he loves God, he loves his people, he loves his laws, his promises, Paul is recognizing that his conscience must necessarily be recalibrated according to the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk more about the conscience later in upcoming weeks. Notice, though, that in the text, Paul doubles down on what he said here. He says, I am speaking the truth, and then he switches it around and he says, I am not lying. So really emphasizing this point. He has very great sorrow. He has unceasing anguish. This is very strong, emotional language that Paul is using. Why is Paul so worked up? 
And when you first look at this, you might think, Paul, maybe just settle down a little bit. What is so upsetting, Paul? Paul, I believe, is worked up because he knows that condemnation remains for those who are cut off from Christ. We love Romans 8.1, brilliant passage, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the sort of thing you might even want to put on a mug. But the inversion of that sentence is also true. It's very troubling. And that's what Paul's so upset about. Those who are not in Christ Jesus do face condemnation. Notice that what Paul prays or wishes, is another way to put that translation there, he prays or wishes that he could be cut off from Christ in place of his brothers. The word behind cut off in our translations there, that word cut off is actually anathema. It's a very strong word. Cut off might not fully explain the weight of what Paul is trying to communicate here. It's not like getting cut off in traffic. To be cut off in this sense is actually to be cursed, to be headed for destruction. It means to stand under condemnation before God. It means headed for hell. But we know that Paul is being hyperbolic. We know that Paul is being hypothetical here. And we know this because we've just read Romans 8. There's like two verses before this. He told us there is no way to be separated from the love of God in Christ. It's not possible. Paul has not forgotten that doctrine that he just taught and told and affirmed moments ago. And yet, experientially, there is something sometimes that stirs in the heart. I think parents might know this feeling. When you see your child suffer, there's something that rises up in you. And you would absolutely be willing to take his or her place and bear the suffering in their place. Even though it's not possible, the impulse drives up within you. I think that sort of gets to the sympathy that is descriptive of what Paul is going for here. Paul has a great love for his fellow countrymen, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Of course, we know that there was a point at which Paul himself, who was a Jew, was cut off from Christ. He knows, Paul knows experientially what it's like to reject Christ. There is a willing blindness that is involved in rejecting the gospel. He himself was trying to be a faithful Jew by persecuting Jesus' followers. He once was lost in darkness night and thought he knew the way. Paul's experience of regeneration, of being born again by the Holy Spirit from above, recognizing the truth of the gospel, the true identity of who Jesus is as the Christ, that was a shift in his complete understanding of reality. The sweetness of God's amazing saving grace was so real to Paul. And for him to know that there were others who are just like he was at one point in his own past as a part of his testimony, to know that there are others who are still like that crushes him, causes him deep anguish. Some of you know that anguish. When he says great sorrow and unceasing anguish, you don't think that that's strange, you get it. You just sort of intuitively you understand because you have your own kinsmen according to the flesh who not yet have embraced the gospel. Unbelieving family members that you wish you could just sort of splash with cold water and wake them up to the necessity of embracing Christ as Savior. That helplessness that we feel that Paul describes here, 
ought to drive us in desperate prayer, dependent prayer, to God. This passage really was convicting to me uh, as I slowed down to read it carefully over this past weeks. Just meditating on this concept, I confess that I all too often don't share the same level of grief and anguish over other people, over the disbelief of others. I was in a conversation recently with one fairly recent convert who wanted desperately to be sure that his family members heard the gospel. He longed for them to embrace Christ alone for salvation. There is a zeal for souls that sometimes is characteristic of someone right after conversion that for whatever reason sometimes gets lost over time. Whether due to discouragement in evangelism or distraction by other concerns of life, sometimes the zeal for the gospel, a zeal for the souls of others, zeal for the lost, it can shrink, it can evaporate over time. I have to think that what troubled Paul so much in his own experience was that he knew convictionally that Christianity was objectively true. Christianity is objectively true. In our relativistic culture, we don't really think much about ultimate truths very often. So for example, when we talk about different denominations within Christianity, and we talk about how they've got different tastes and preferences, well, this, these kind of churches like to practice church this way. This is the kind of preaching they like. This is the kind of music they like. And so it just sounds like an issue of, of taste, an issue of preference. And there's some sense in which that is true. There is Christian charity that we'd be able to disagree about certain things agreeably within reason. But that sort of lighthearted Christian charity with which we agree within Christianity about indifferent matters, that charity cannot go over and be applied to those who have actually embraced a false gospel or have not embraced the gospel at all. The core truth of the gospel is not a matter of taste or preference. There are certain things that are true about the gospel that we cannot agree to disagree about. They're not matters of taste. They're not matters of preference. Paul was in anguish because he knew that the gospel is true and eternity is long. What a sobering gut check that is. Sometimes we only think of Christianity as being helpful It has a spiritual or therapeutic benefit to it. Maybe it can give you a peace of mind that's helpful in this day and age. You might hear people say, well, that's great. That's nice. If you have embraced Christianity, I'm glad that that's helpful to you. As if it didn't matter. The reason that it's helpful is because it's true. If it wasn't true, it wouldn't be helpful. This is how it works. Someone might say it's nice that you're a Christian. If it helps you, you should believe it. That's great. But of course, we don't believe things because we... We think they're helpful to us. We believe things because we think they're true, objectively true. We tend to shrink the gospel down to our present age, even accidentally. We sometimes are told that Jesus died not to appease the wrath of God, but to show us how important we are, to help us reach our full potential as as humans, or that Jesus died and rose again that we might sort of enjoy material wealth or health in this life here on earth, here and now. But this, this passage would make no sense if that was what Paul was trying to argue for. What sort of anguish would be stirred up over someone just sort of missing out on stink, like peace of mind? Would he be that stirred up? 
Would he be in unceasing sorrow because they just happened to choose a different religion, but really it's just a matter of taste, and all roads lead to God in the end? No. Paul is shook because he knows that this life is not all there is. The here and now is not all that exists. It is appointed once to men to die, and after this, the judgment. The exuberant freedom of knowing that there is no condemnation in Christ, as we see in Romans 8.1, is contrasted by the crushing blow of knowing that condemnation remains on those who reject Jesus. It'll just be helpful to keep in mind as we're going through the rest of Romans 9 and following that Paul has a very high view of God's sovereignty. He has a very high view of God's providential orchestration of all of history, and yet that does not cause him to be passionless about the salvation of other people. Please notice that. Please keep that in mind as we're walking through the rest of these chapters. Paul does not have an apathy. He is not resigned. He is passionate, particularly as it relates to Israel. So we'll keep reading in verses 4 through 5. Second, notice from the text, God's gracious privileges don't guarantee faith in Christ. Verses 4 and 5, I'll read those again. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Israelites belong to God in a distinct way from all of the other nations. We're just thinking back to the Old Testament, okay? They were given unique privileges. Uh, One commentator notes and says it this way, I think it's helpful. They were God's chosen vessel for the plan of salvation. And that plan of salvation ultimately would culminate in Jesus, in his birth, in his person, in his work. Notice that Paul lists off six privileges there in these passages. Notice them with me. Adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, and promises. We're just going to think about each of them quickly in turn. First, adoption. God spoke of the corporate people of Israel as his adopted firstborn son in the Old Testament. Exodus 4, he talks about his adopted son, Israel, his firstborn son, Israel. Also in Deuteronomy, also in Jeremiah, this is a repeated theme. Israel was his adopted nation in that sense. Glory. This one's a little more confusing because we know that God doesn't give his glory to another. We read about this in Isaiah. So in what sense can we say that God gave his glory or his glory belongs to the nation of Israel? I think it probably refers to the visible manifestation of God's glory that they would have experienced and seen as he led them out of slavery in Egypt. They had seen with their eyes a shadow of God's manifest glory through a shining cloud, that glory cloud, as it had accompanied them out of their slavery. They also would have seen God's glory descend upon the temple. When the temple was dedicated, they saw God's glory descend upon it. They would have witnessed that in a distinct way from other nations. This is something unique that was given to Israel. The blessing of God's glory, then, in this sense, is likely just that God's God's glory was revealed to them in unique ways, which was distinct from the other nations. Covenants. 
A covenant is an agreement which defines a relationship between parties marked by faithfulness and love. It is a relational term. It's not an impersonal contract. It's a relational term. Covenant is a biblical relational concept. And so what we see here in, throughout the Old Testament is God enters into covenant relationship with Israel. And he does this with them in a way that is distinct from other nations. We know, of course, that he made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses and with all of Israel at Mount Sinai. Of course, he gave a covenant to King David, king of Israel. And there was a blessing in being in a covenant relationship with with God that belonged uniquely to Israel, not other nations. Law. Giving of the law. This is fascinating, too. Laying down the law might not sound like a blessing. But God revealing his law to Israel at Mount Sinai, with just thinking even just narrowly of those Ten Commandments, was an act of grace and mercy. Paul dealt with this just earlier in chapter 7 of Romans. The law is holy and righteous and good, is what Paul says. It means that we are not left to our own sinful minds to decide or discover what is right or wrong. He hasn't left us alone. The creator who designed his creation graciously revealed it to us so that we might know the benefits of living in alignment with creation as he has made it. That law, which was so merciful, was given distinctly to Israel. Worship. This refers to the sacrificial system. The worship of the covenantal worship system with all of its sacrifices and the tabernacle, the temple rituals that it would have included. God graciously prescribed for Israel how to show him thanks and how to find forgiveness. This is a gift that God gave to Israel. The drama that they would have experienced in, in the liturgies, the practices that they would have gone through in the temple, all of these things would have been a gift to them. That drama were tangible, visible expressions that they could touch and see and feel, ways that they would understand the heinousness of sin and the gloriousness, the beauty of holiness. They would learn uniquely about the possibility of restoration with God. That was a distinct blessing. Other nations didn't know that. Israel alone knew that blessing. The promises. This is a much bigger category, of course, almost a, a catch-all sort of category. God promised a lot to Israel. We think, though, just sort of narrowly about the promises that God made to Abraham, who was the father of Israel. We remember that God promised Abraham to make him a blessing to the nations, that he would be a blessing and be blessed. He promised to give him many descendants. He promised to give him land. But the promises that were made to Israel would have included much more than that. One of the promises that we've read about in the book of Isaiah recently, one of those promises that was made to Israel was that an anointed servant would one day come and free them. Free them not just from their bondage to a captor, a physical captor, but he would come and free them from bondage to sin. And this promised person, this servant, was called the Messiah. God also promised to pour out the Holy Spirit on his people. So you've got the Messiah, the promised Messiah. You've got the promised Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit promised multiple times just in the book of Isaiah. It's in Ezekiel. It's in Joel. God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit upon his people. 
So we would want to include in those promises made to Israel, the Messiah and the Holy Spirit is an important part of those promises. Paul goes on and he says, to them belong the patriarchs. Patriarchs just means fathers, those heads of the family. We usually think of the patriarchs as being uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph. Those are the patriarchs of Israel, those folks that we read about in the book of Genesis. He chose those flawed men, those sinful men, to establish the ethnic line of Israel. And then, of course, finally, Paul notes that the Christ comes from that line. Notice how these blessings, these blessings or privileges that have been given to Israel belong to Israel. Notice that as you're reading through this, to them belongs these things. But notice that Christ is different. He doesn't belong to Israel. He is from Israel. Christ doesn't belong to Israel. He is from Israel. And Paul emphasizes this by saying he is God over all. So that that ethnic line of Israel that was cultivated by God through the patriarchs, brought throughout Old Testament redemptive history, ultimately it came forward and would be fulfilled in the person of Christ. God himself, through the line of the patriarchs, would take on human flesh. Christ is just the New Testament way of saying that he's the Messiah. So that Old Testament promise about this coming Messiah It's the Christ. This is the way that you just say it in the New Testament language. So Jesus, then, is the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises. All of those promises come to fulfillment in Christ, and that Christ came from within the line of Israel. This is the point that that Paul is making here, I think, and it's going to be really important to keep this in mind as we go forward in the book of Romans. All of the blessings, all of the privileges that God gave to Israel ultimately pointed towards Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in him. This is 2 Corinthians. So we are adopted as children of God through Christ, our brother. This is Romans 8. God revealed his glory in a very ultimate sense, even beyond shadows of clouds and pillars of fire. He revealed his glory in an ultimate sense in and through Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills all the obligations of the covenants. He institutes a new and better covenant for those who are united to him by faith. And Jesus fulfilled the law. We know that he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. And that changes then, by virtue of our union with him, it changes our relationship to the law. Now we can see the law as a guide towards godliness, not just a measure of judgment. Jesus fulfilled the temple system of worship that was instituted in Israel. All of that was pointing towards this Christ. So all of the promises of God find their yes in him. So there's a very real sense in which Jesus is the true Israel. He is everything Israel represented. He is everything that Israel foreshadowed. That point is going to be helpful as it gets dicey as we go further into the book of Romans trying to figure out the relationship between Israel, the Gentiles, the church. Remember, Jesus is the true Israel. Notice what this verse says about Jesus, verse 5. It says that Jesus is human. It says that he was born of the line of Israel according to the flesh. Notice also that it says that Jesus is God over all. So, He is God in the flesh. 
There's some debate, of course, about how the grammar of the original language is structured here, but throughout church history, historians, theologians, commentators, even most translations that you will find and read agree that what this verse is saying is that Jesus Christ is God over all. So really, this isn't new to Paul. This is really just a reemphasis of something he said in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 of Romans. He said there that Jesus descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Humanity, deity. This doctrine is called the hypostatic union. It's the hypostatic unions. Jesus is one person with two natures, truly divine, truly human. This is a basic Christian doctrine we must affirm. We must understand. We cannot reject this. We must rightly understand the person of Christ. Well, Israel was given privileges that other nations weren't given. And yet now that fulfillment of those uh, ethnic and cultural traditions and all those practices, all those had come now in Jesus. Because the point of all these things was, was pointing to Jesus, and yet many still rejected him. When, according to Paul's thinking, they should have seen Jesus coming from a mile away. They should have run to embrace him. Well, now let's think of that inwardly. We can think about the Jews and their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now think about it inwardly. What privileges have you been given that should help you embrace your faith? What privileges have you been given that might help you to grow as a disciple of Christ? To whom much is given, much will be required, Jesus reminds us. What have you or I been given? We, of course, have access to the Bible in our language at the touch of a finger. So many great, helpful, faithful books that we have access to. Wonderful, God-glorifying worship music. Study groups. We have classes. We have Christian fellowship. We have community groups. We have countless opportunities for discipleship. All of these things are privileges given to us. We, are, we have been given an embarrassment, historically speaking, an embarrassment of riches means of grace that we all too often do not take advantage of. How about the freedom to break free from sin that Jesus promises us? How are we doing at using God's means of grace to help us grow in Christ-likeness? Now, you might be thinking, not well, and I don't want to make you feel guilty. That's not the point here. I hope we see the, just the value of what we have been given, the value of the riches that God has given to us spiritually in and through his church. It's so much more uh, fulfilling to be drawn towards the means of grace than to be guilted into it. I, I long for you to be drawn into it, to value it rightly, not simply because we feel like it's our duty and we have to do it. Ultimately, if that's where you need to start, that's great. Ultimately, though, the end goal is because we delight in God. What do you think might have been the reasons that Israel didn't embrace Jesus? Pride, stubbornness, maybe this didn't care. It might have been simply indifference, or maybe it was distraction. Now again, let's turn that inward. What might our reasons for rejecting the gospel be? The privileges that Israel received as a means of grace made their rejection of Christ even more tragic. For those of us who have been raised in a Christian home, these verses say a lot 
this should hit pretty hard. Those of us who have grown up in a Christian home, particularly young kids, don't neglect the privileges that you've been given by being brought to church. You should know that I hear testimonies from people pretty consistently who have come to Christ later in life who would have loved to have grown up in the church, who would have loved to have regular exposure to the gospel, who would have loved to have had parents who would be willing to read the Bible with them. So if you're here as a youth, take advantage of that means of grace that God has so graciously given to you. Just because you're born into a family, that does not guarantee that you're going to believe. If your parents are Christians, it's not a guarantee that you're going to be a Christian. That's not how it works. It's not your good works that saved you. It's not your genealogy that saves you. It doesn't matter if you. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. It's not baptism. It's not whether you regularly fill a pew on Sunday mornings. Salvation is faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. This is the only way of salvation. It's not by genetics. But you have been given privileges that I hope you take advantage of. May we all appreciate and take advantage of what God has given to us in and through the church, young or old. And may we, with the Christ-like heart of Paul, invite others to the feast at which we sit. Paul is praying here to be destroyed in the place of God's people. And it sounds a lot like our call to worship text that we heard this morning from Exodus 32. Elliot read it for us earlier. In that passage, just to remind you, Moses is sort of acting as an an intermediator, a mediator between God and his people. We recall that Israel had just engaged in idolatry after having received the covenant. He comes down and he sees that they've made a golden calf. Moses goes back and, and intercedes, he mediates on behalf of Israel, God's people. And Moses says, please forgive them. Please forgive your people. Blot me out of your book. That book is the book of life. So he's saying, may I be cut off for the sake of your people. Similar concepts here. If it were possible, I would be willing to be cut off for the sake of your people. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Moses could not be cut off for the sake of Israel. Moses can't withstand the judgment of God. Moses is a finite, sinful human. He can't substitute himself for Israel. Paul, though he would desire to be cut off for the sake of God's people, is a finite, sinful human. Paul could not shed his blood for his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh. It's not how it works. Only someone who is truly righteous Only someone who is truly God and who is truly man can bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity. This is why doctrine matters. This is why the hypostatic union comes back into use, doesn't it? There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man and can be sacrificially cut off for his people withstand the judgment and redeem his people. Paul loved his people according to the flesh and if it was possible, which it is not, he would have been cut off for them. He would have taken on the curse of their unbelief. Jesus, the Messiah, 
loved his people according to the flesh. And he was cut off for them. This is our sermon text, actually, just a couple weeks ago from Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? What Moses longed to do, what Paul longed to do, is met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know this from the New Testament as well. Galatians 3, 13 to 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise, spirit through faith. The curse there is to be cut off, to be to become sin, who knew no sin. That happened in history. It's an objectively true fact. And because it's true, it has implications certainly in this life, but certainly beyond just this life. This passage is a stark reminder to take the gospel seriously. So my invitation to anyone who would hear me, trust in Christ, who was cut off, who took on the curse of your rebellion, or you will be cut off, destined for destruction. It need not be the case. God made a way for us in Christ to be reconciled to our creator. And for that, he is eternally worthy of blessing and honor and glory. So with the Apostle Paul, may we all have a burden to share this message of salvation from the wrath of God in and, person, in and through the person of work of Jesus Christ with great love with our, our kinsmen according to the flesh, those in our families, those in our communities.